Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Pink Moon Murders, a production of iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Episode 3, Black Crows and White Caskets. Turn right here. Turn right onto McDermott Pond Creek Road, wow. then you'll there arrive at your destination. Yeah. On a cold, windy day in the late fall, I drove into Sauda Burial Park with Todd, a former cop who's lived in Pike County all his life. He and his fiancée were friends with Dana Roden. As we turned into the cemetery, we saw well-maintained grass with hundreds of new and old tombstones. The gravel road sloped up a large hill to a summit that overlooked a creek in the larger Sauda River. Nearby on one side of us was farmland, and in the distance on all sides was a tranquil panorama of the Appalachian Piedmont. I drove at idle speed for a minute and then stopped so we could scan the tombstones for the Roden family. I'm going to glance at the dates. So th- this uh, oh, tombstone my. says 2005. That's pretty. Ni- 1953. So I was wondering if there, like, that probably is a newer one over there. I was wondering if there might be a new an area for, like, 2016 burials or something. Yeah, let's go back just a hair. I put the car in neutral and let it roll down several yards. No one was in the cemetery but us and a murder of crows perched in naked oak trees not far away. These are uh, burial in 1998, 2009. <laughs> I drove the car farther up the hill. Man, look at that Mayberry one was pretty. Yeah. Pertussids are all out this way for sure. Roden family right, right there. Right there, my goodness. Let's get up and look at that. Yeah. Todd, because of his law enforcement connections, he didn't want his real name used, so that's a pseudonym and I walked over the grass to the family's final resting spot. A large charcoal-colored tombstone stood with the words, Together Forever Roden, and etchings of Chris and Dana, probably from when they were married, as well as Frankie, Hannah, and little Chris. Placed next to it were colorful flowers, a small American flag, and a teddy bear that looked new. Dana and Chris had divorced when their three kids were young, but she remained on the homestead. She lived in the second trailer, the one that became Frankie and Hannah Hazel's home, until Chris seemed to have better finances and bought her the trailer and land a mile up on Union Hill Road. So they had moved forward in life as a family, but also with some space between them. And that's how they're spending eternity. Then we walked to the five individual graves, which had headstones set in the grass. So there's Hannah Roden, mother of Sophia and Kylie, Frankie Roden, father of Brentley, and Ruger, fiance of Hannah Gilly. Sad. Mm. As a cold wind blew down the big hill, making me shiver, Todd and I stood silently. I wondered what he was thinking. Eventually he spoke. You know what's funny is I seen Dana at Walmart 
about a week before all this went down. Is that right? Mm-hmm. He paused with vacancy in his eyes as he looked at her headstone. He hadn't talked details about Dana yet, and I wanted to learn more. But this wasn't the right time. Soon the crows in the oak trees that had lost their leaves started cawing, and the wind picked up. I have to admit it was eerie standing in the cemetery on that cold, windy day in late fall, even if it was daytime. The trees looked dead, and the black crows sounded ominous. Pods of dark clouds obscured the sun in the eastern sky. I looked back to the graves and thought about the bodies inside. Several days after the murders, preliminary findings were released jointly by the Pike and Hamilton County coroners since the bodies had been transported to the big city of Cincinnati for autopsies. They reported, quote, all sustained fatal gunshot wounds to the body, including the head, torso, and extremities. There was one victim with a single gunshot wound, one victim with two gunshot wounds, two victims each with three gunshot wounds, one victim with four gunshot wounds, two victims each with five gunshot wounds, and one victim with nine gunshot wounds. 32 gunshot wounds. Based on trajectories of the bullets and positions of the bodies at the crime scenes, investigators do not believe it was a murder-suicide. That means in the middle of the night, at four locations, an intruder fired at least 32 bullets into the bodies of eight sleeping people. That's definitely eerie and infuriating. Plus, almost unbelievable. Somebody sneaked past all those dogs into all those homes and then had nerves cold enough to press the trigger that many times. I bet most of the victims, if not all, had no connection whatsoever to any payback, as some people speculated, that was meted out by the killer. Of course, it's hard to imagine any offense that would call for murdering eight people in their sleep with babies nearby. The preliminary findings also reported that some of the victims showed signs of soft tissue bruising. That means they were beaten right before or after death. No further details were announced, including who was shot how many times and the type or types of bullets used, and who was shot first or last, if that was even known. Law enforcement officials wanted to keep some secrets for the time being. A little while after visiting the cemetery, I reached out to Dr. Lakshmi Simarco, Hamilton County's coroner, to see if she would answer questions. I had so many. She replied she would be happy to talk with me, but unfortunately was leaving soon for a vacation in Florida. I explained I was in Florida that week and could drive to wherever she'd be, or I could ask questions over the phone or through email. But without explanation, she concluded she wouldn't be available. She's probably bound by the judge's gag order. Dr. San Marco released the body shortly after the autopsies and they were transported to funeral homes in Southern Ohio. I sat down with Pastor Phil, who's preached at Union Hill Church for more than 50 years and has served as spokesman for the Roden family. He described how Chris, Dana, and their kids, along with Chris's brother, Kenneth, were buried on May 3rd after visitations and funerals down in West Portsmouth. That's on the Ohio River, just across from Greenup County, Kentucky, the Roden's ancestral homeland. I'll never forget walking in not to the funeral, but to the funeral home at the visitation. And uh, I will never forget, and I've never experienced the feeling to walk in to a room and see all the caskets around the wall, uh, starting, if I remember right, with the youngest, right on around to uh, 
Dana, and Chris, and Chris's brother. Surprisingly, the caskets were open. Pastor Phil said the funeral director did an amazing job with the bodies. They had the funeral in a, in a very, very large church. There was not a seat available, and it was standing room only. And sitting there and seeing white caskets lined up totally across and thinking this whole family was wiped out. Among the mourners was Geneva Roden, who sat in the front pew. She was burying two sons, a putative daughter-in-law, a nephew, three grandkids, and the fiancé of a grandson. She wailed throughout the service. Also in attendance were police officers. After all, eight family members had been killed, and many rodents were attending this funeral. No one knew if they too were targeted. Regardless, the killer might be at the funeral, so it was an opportunity for police to study faces. This was shaping up as the most intense manhunt in state history. Just the day before, Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine and Pike County Sheriff Charlie Reeder had announced that 128 witnesses had been interviewed, or at least contacted so far, and more than 450 tips had been received by BCI and the Pike County Sheriff's Office. Additionally, more than 100 pieces of evidence had been sent to the BCI Crime Laboratory for DNA, ballistic, latent print, and trace analysis. After the funeral was a procession of six hearses and scores of other vehicles traveling up to the cemetery. You uh, stand up on that hill and see them with, with all the hearses lined up. And one by one, they, they bring up the caskets and put it at the burial site. <sighs> From under a blue canopy tent, Geneva Roden's sobbing carried throughout the hills. A newspaper reporter quoted her as crying, Oh my God, my God, as pallbearers brought the caskets to the open graves. And Leonard, the patriarch of the Manley clan, sat next to his daughter Dana's casket. The reporter described him as slumped and shaking as only a broken man can. After the service, Kenneth's body was driven up to Piketon, where he was interred next to his son, who had died of cancer at the age of six. They're at Mound Cemetery, which has been a burial site since the time of the early Indians who built Serpent Mound 20 miles west as the Black Crow flies. Gary Roden's services were held several days earlier at Crockett L. Reed Funeral Home down in Greenup County. A lifelong hunter, he was buried in camouflage. For hours at the visitation, which was reportedly attended by 80 people, his dad embraced one loved one after another. He told them Gary had been a good son. After a reporter asked the retired farmer and railroad worker who might have killed his son, he replied, I don't know. Then he added, I'd like to take him and torture him for killing the whole family like this. Investigators had told him privately that his son had been shot three times in the head. Two days later, in the rain, Hannah Hazel Gilly was laid to rest at Hackworth Hill Cemetery outside Raritan. That's the village, population 150, where she grew up. The visitation and funeral were held in nearby Otway. Just like at the other services, many mourners wore jeans and t-shirts, and several wore camouflage and baseball caps. A few wore shirts with the words, in memory of Hannah Gilly. 
Later that day, a charity car wash was held to raise money for her six-month-old son, Ruger. And the night before, a couple of thousand people showed up at the Pike County Fairgrounds for a candlelight vigil to honor all eight victims. Balloons with handwritten notes were released into the sky, and money was raised to help pay for the funerals. The Pink Moon Murders will return after the break. And now, back to the Pink Moon Murders. I wanted to learn more about Hannah Hazel, who was 20, so when I saw her mom one afternoon outside the Pike County Courthouse, I introduced myself and asked if she'd like to talk, but she replied that she had nothing to say publicly. Then she sat down on the back of her man's Harley Davidson, and they drove off while blasting a Tom Petty song. Months later, at Bear Creek Cash and Carry, I met a sales clerk who said she was Hannah Hazel's second cousin. She was really friendly and we spoke for 20 minutes, but she didn't divulge too much about her relative, who she called Hazel. She said the family didn't want to publicly say words that might be misconstrued and hurt the investigation. On a different day, a sunny Sunday afternoon, I drove to Hackworth Hill Cemetery. It's small, with only a handful of graves, and right off a narrow back road. Around it are a few homes and small farms with a backdrop of forested hills. Hannah Hazel's tombstone has a photo of her with a fun-loving smile. And on the ground that day were fresh flowers and little statues of owls. A nearby bench was engraved with the words, look to the sky for an angel with blue eyes. I stood for several minutes, just looking and thinking. Fortunately, her Facebook account was still active. Besides boasting of her love for Frankie and their son, she posted a lot of photos with them and with Frankie's three-year-old. All the comments were about how cute they were. It was clear she was hyper-focused on her young family. One of her last posts looked like a selfie, and Hannah Mae Roden replied with a smiley emoji that had hearts as eyes. Hannah Hazel replied, thanks, boo. I didn't learn anything new in her obituary. I learned in Dana's, however, that she'd been born in Highland County, which borders Pike. I didn't know the Manley family had lived there, but maybe it just had a good hospital. Pastor Phil told Todd and me about her. Dana was a, a good mom, very personable, flighty, but uh, a hard worker, loved, loved her kids and all. There was never a time when I met Dana Roden that I didn't get a hug. Never a time. I'd, I'd seen her and Hannah just probably a couple weeks. And uh, of course, she ran up, give me a big hug, and rubbed, she rubbed Hannah's big belly and said, well, I'm going to be grandma again, Phil. And then, boom. Pastor Phil said Dana was religious. She was doing her best to set herself and the kids on a good course for life and for the afterlife. Uh, Dana come to church uh, faithfully for a, oh, a number of years and, and the kids. Hannah grew up here in church. Dana's daughter. I, I knew Hannah well. I knew, I knew all of those kids well. On and off, Hannah Mae, Frankie, and little Chris participated in the youth organization on Wednesday nights and Bible study. Dana, 37, was also doing her best at the nursing home. After her death, her boss told a reporter she was a kind and caring worker, and altruistic. She occasionally brought in hamburgers and other treats for patients, even though she didn't make much above minimum wage. 
But she, like her kids, had a duality. A couple of people whispered to me that she could have a bad temper. And one told me she used to tell raunchy jokes at the flea market where they had booths to make extra money on weekends. Dana sold pocketbooks and similar items. It seemed like she was always working to make extra money. On Thursday, April 21st, 2016, she worked a double shift from the early morning until 11 o'clock p.m. Sometime after getting home, she and the others in her trailer were murdered. Those in the other three homes might have already been dead. She'd got off, she'd work late that night and uh, come home. Uh, I had heard from some of the co-workers, she was very upset about something and they wasn't sure. He changed the subject and when I circled back to ask why she was very upset, he said he didn't have anything to add. That definitely added to this mystery and possibly provided motive. Maybe someone was very upset with her and decided to exact vengeance on her and her family. The others who might have been primary targets in this who done it and why done it and how done it were her sons who liked to smash up cars and got in fights and her ex-husband who had the alleged cockfighting and chop shop operations. Plus there was what Attorney General DeWine had announced at the end of the press conference that became a massive game changer for investigators. I kept thinking that whoever was killed first was the primary target. Wouldn't you start with the one you hated the most in case you got stopped by someone or something, including your nerves? It was too bad the coroners did not announce who was killed first. I also wondered who got the nine gunshot wounds and who got the one. That information might also be an indicator of who the primary target was. I still wanted to discover more about the rodents, so I spent a couple of mornings at Piketon High School which Dana and her kids had attended. Staff in yearbooks taught me a lot. Dana was a junior in the 1997 Piketonian. Her last name that year was Roden and not Manly, meaning she was already married. Her senior year headshot shows an innocent looking girl with a soft smile and a white scrunchie in her hair. But I didn't see her in other photos and a school employee told me she wasn't involved in extracurricular activities. The married high school student had two kids and a husband at home, so she was busy enough. That school employee said Dana's kids, Frankie, Hannah Mae, and little Chris, were not involved in many school activities either, and the dearth of yearbook photos supports this. I did see some headshots for the two boys, although Frankie was listed as missing for a couple, and a photo of Frankie welding, but nothing else for them. They stayed occupied outside school with part-time jobs and derby cars. Frankie attended the local vocational school for a while, and Frankie's first baby mom gave birth to their son his junior year. I saw more in the Piketonian for Hannah Mae, even though she also studied at the vocational school for a while and took maternity leave twice. During her freshman year, she competed on the Lady Red Streaks team that won the girls' state division four, five, and six powerlifting title. According to the Pike County News Watchman, the local newspaper, Hannah Mae placed 15th in her weight class with a total of 505 pounds. The 15-year-old squatted 155, benched 125, and deadlifted 225 pounds. It's even more impressive considering she was likely pregnant. She gave birth eight months later to Sophia. And on a page titled Homecoming 2012, the Piketonian shows a photo of Hannah Mae wearing a strapless dress with a black top that has colorful streaks and a pink waist. A pretty corsage adorns her wrist. 
She's cute with light brown, shoulder-length hair in that photo, and is a plus size, maybe because of the weightlifting. She's standing next to a boy wearing jeans, a black shirt with rolled-up sleeves, a vest that matches her dress, a white tie, and a boutonniere. He's several inches taller than her and slender with muscular forearms. His hair is cut short on all sides with a slight flip-up in the front. The caption says, Hannah Roden and her date. It's an odd photo. They're the only couple on the page not with their arms around each other. He's standing with his arms crossed and a smirk on his face like he's bored or angry, and she appears to be forcing a smile. We put this and other photos on our website. Although he's not identified in that photo, the boy looks like Jake Wagner. Jake did not attend Piketon High. He was a few years older than Hannah Mae and regardless had been homeschooled. A school employee told me that she would have had to fill out a form to bring an outsider like him to the dance. Jake became the dad of Hannah Mae's daughter, Sophia. He made news after the 2016 murders because he started a GoFundMe account to support Sophia and pay legal bills in the wake of her mom's death. He wrote, These were not expenses I was supposed to have. I was just supposed to be able to spend time with her and give her a happy childhood. She was only two and a half years old. Then he added, Sophie and I are just asking for enough to settle the fees that we acquired due to this horrific tragedy to her mommy. Jake filed documents at the courthouse to get full legal custody, which up to then had been informal with Hannah Mae having their daughter most of the time after they split up. Fortunately, she had dropped off Sophia at Jake's before she gave birth to Kylie, and he still had her when the murders happened. But the other youngest rodents were taken by Ohio's Child Protective Services. Brentley, Frankie's three-year-old, was eventually handed over to his mom, Chelsea. To this day, though, years later, orphans Kylie and Ruger reportedly remain in state custody. This story has so much heartbreak. Yet in the community and among investigators, speculation spread that those three children at the trailer survived because they were too young to later describe the killer to police. There was hope that the killer had at least that amount of humanity. Jake was also in the news shortly after the murders because he was claiming paternity of Kylie, although two other guys might have been her dad. One was Hannah Hazel's brother, Charlie, who Hannah may had had a fling with after breaking up with Jake, and the other was Corey Holdren, her boyfriend at the time of the murders. Jake told a reporter he was sure that he was the dad because the timing of her pregnancy made sense and because it looked like Kylie had a hammer toe, which was a Wagner trait. Jake said if it turned out he was not the dad, quote, I'm not going to take her, but I will want mandatory visitation in order to see her regularly, end quote. It was a bold statement. He must have already been feeling protective of the little girl and wanted her to grow up with her half or full sister. DNA tests later proved Charlie Gilly was her dad. Jake was disappointed. The other guy, Corey, hasn't spoken publicly about the potential for being Kylie's father. But Hannah Mae's Facebook cover photo shows Corey with his hand on her pregnant belly, so he looked supportive. It's dated April 4th, 2016, a couple of weeks before she gave birth. Back in October, she had updated her social media status to say she was in a relationship, and it was clear she met with him. She posted plenty of photos with Corey, including a cute one of him holding her other daughter, Sophia. But with deeper research, I found out Hannah Mae had a second Facebook account. Its cover photo shows her kissing Charlie while stating she began a relationship with him 
about two months before beginning with Corey. Maybe because of the uncertainty, Kylie's birth certificate lists Roden as her last name. Sophia's last name is Wagner. In Hannah's first account, her full name is Hannah May Roden, but the URL says facebook.com slash hannah.rodenwagner as if she had married Jake. She created the account in 2011 when she was 14 and already dating Jake. Then on November 23, 2013, five days after giving birth to Sophia, she posted a status update that said, got married. She followed that up by commenting, we really aren't married, but we might as well be married. And after the murders, a newspaper article said Hannah Mae and Jake had tattoos of wedding bands on their ring fingers and were planning on getting married. More Pink Moon murders after a word from our sponsors. We now return to the Pink Moon murders. The young couple and their daughter Sophia lived with Jake's parents and brother near Peebles and with Hannah Mae's mom and little brother on Union Hill Road. So for a long time they were deeply in love, but then it ended. Hannah Mae was definitely dynamic. She was dating boys, raising a daughter, dealing with pregnancy, going to school, and working until just a few days before her April 17th delivery of Kylie. April 2016 was shaping up to be a fantastic month. On the 7th was her 19th birthday, and on the 9th was her baby shower. But then the horrific happened on the night of the 21st to 22nd. To find out more about Hannah Mae, I sat down with Alex Bond, who knew her in elementary, middle, and high school, and asked what she was like. Um, definitely more on the rebel side. Like, she wasn't crazy and disrespectful all the time or anything, but she definitely wasn't, like, the most, um, I'm trying to think of the word. She wasn't, like, a rule follower, good girl type. I'd say she was definitely more sporty than cheerleader. She definitely wasn't the cheerleader type. With Hannah Mae having maternity leave during her sophomore and senior years, and also taking some classes at the vocational school, Alex didn't hang out with her much in high school. She remembers more from when they were younger. In middle school, we were all fascinated with makeup and clothes and the usual, yeah, the usual girly things. But Hannah Mae did like hunting, fishing, and four-wheeling, and often wore boots, jeans, and sweatshirts to school. She was a Southern Ohio country girl who still wanted to attract boys. After discovering a good amount about Dana and her three kids, and a little about Hannah Hazel Gilly, with more research needing to be done on Chris, Kenneth, and Gary, I drove Todd to Union Hill Road. I was interested in his insight and theories about the shootings, wanted to see what was left of the crime scenes, and needed to understand the lay of the land in person. It was my first time there, although eventually I traveled the road so many times I lost count. I would park, stand at the crime scenes, and just think. Along the way, Todd added details to some of the theories I've already mentioned and described new ones. One entailed a possible connection to the disappearance of six women in Chillicothe, a city of 22,000, from May 2014 to May 2015. Chillicothe is 35 miles from Union Hill Road. I later chased those leads a little, but didn't find solid connections. And a couple of his theories he admitted might only be hearsay. All I will say about those is that they involved a lot of money that was used illegally. On Union Hill Road, we first passed the property where Dana lived with little Chris and Hannah Mae, 
and Hannah Mae's babies, and then the property where Chris and Gary lived, and finally the property where Frankie and Hannah Hazel lived with their boys. This stretch of road, which is less than three miles long, is almost the county line separating Pike from Adams at the top and then Pike from Soda at the bottom. It cuts through hard hills and hollers while the arbitrary man-made county line matches it for the most part, but zigzags through Chris's homestead with his barns being split into Pike and Soda counties. And Dana's homestead lies in Soda but touches Adams and Pike. When entering Union Hill Road off Route 32, the Appalachian Highway, you first drive through Adams. To better understand the various properties in this case, I spent parts of five days in the Pike County Government Center's property map office. The ladies there pulled up satellite images on a computer, as well as historic surveys on paper, and sorted through old documents while helping me out. But it took even them a long time to get a clear understanding of where the county lines are for these three rodent properties. The challenge, they said, is that when the Virginia Military Survey was carried out from the late 1700s to mid-1800s, the surveyors probably created this portion of the Pike County border according to an old animal or Indian trail that didn't match perfectly with how the asphalt road was eventually paved. Today, all of this is unincorporated, regardless of the county. This rural back road is far from the county seats and small villages, 18 miles from Piketon and its 2,100 residents, and 11 miles from Peebles and its 1,700. So far from the prying eyes of the government officials and police, it's the outskirts, the sticks. After reaching the end of Union Hill Road, I turned the car around and drove back, stopping when we arrived where Frankie and Hannah Hazel had lived. On that parcel now stood some untended bushes, trees and grass, a washing machine, a rooster cage, a doghouse, a couple of rusted cars, a small American flag, and what looked like a frame for a carport. I also saw a wooden porch with steps leading to nowhere, its trailer long ago towed away for evidence. The porch reminded me of an orphan whose parent was missing. Todd was my tour guide. The trailers was, a, was nothing but pure blood. Uh, I talked to the guy that hauled the trailers, and he said he didn't even want to go in them. That was so bad. He wow. said it was horrible. Then I drove 75 yards to where Chris and his cousin Gary lived, and it had similar items in the yard, although a lot more cars that were old and rusted. A stone's throw from where their trailer used to be stood the clapboard house, now fading canary yellow, where Chris, some siblings, and their parents had lived decades ago. And right there were the old barn and the huge new barn. Hidden underneath, and at another location, rodents grew almost half a million dollars worth of illegal marijuana, according to multiple sources. It was this information, the announcement of a major grow operation, at the end of that press conference, two days after the murders, that became the game changer for investigators as well as the court of public opinion. The rodents were now largely perceived as drug growers and possibly traffickers who might have been killed in a deal gone bad. They no longer seemed like innocent victims, but like criminals who might have gotten what they deserved. The Pink Moon Murders is a Cavalry audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Written and narrated by David Ratterman. Produced by Brandon Morgan of Cavalry Audio and Casey Wayland for Wayland Productions. Edited by Tim Mulhern. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger.